Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh, and I'm glad you're tuning in today. I'm just happy to share these next few minutes with you. I want you to find victory and life in Jesus Christ. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we're learning how to live as God's people. I mean, we're not done yet. We're still growing, but we do it by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. I want to encourage you to look us up on the web at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Valley View is also on Facebook, so you can find out more about us there. Today, we're starting a new series from the teaching of Jesus, that famous teaching that many people call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' sermon is is a calling for how the Christian is to live. It's a call to holiness, which has been our theme all this year in 2023. Well... The Sermon on the Mount starts with many a phrase that people are familiar with called the Beatitudes. Blessed are is how they start. And I would say, blessed are you who do not fall asleep during the sermon. I remember back to when I was a junior in high school. I was just turning 17 years old. I was a brand new Christian. And the youth group at our church was undergoing a revival. Lots of kids were turning to Jesus and and calling him Lord of their lives. And the high school students all decided to sit in the first four rows of the main church service. Uh, We all decided to go to the same worship service because our church had multiple services. We'd all sit in the same four rows. We thought if we could attend the same service, we'd know if anybody was skipping. And if we all sat in the front rows, our parents and everybody else in the sanctuary could see if we were paying attention or if we were goofing off. So as teens, we decided this was our plan for how to hold each other accountable. But unknown to us, our enthusiasm sitting in those first few rows was a spiritual transformation that happened. It resulted in spiritual transformation in many of the adults in the sanctuary, seeing us teenagers on fire for God. Well, sitting up front in that sanctuary under everybody's eyes was not always easy. I remember there were more than a few Sundays where I would feel sleepy, or that the sermon was going a bit too long, or that lunch was too near, and I was a teenager who was hungry. I remember one day I had a friend, Jeremy was his name, and he explained his tactic that he had developed for sneaking a nap under the eyes of the congregation. The truth is, he wasn't fooling anyone, but he had an elaborate system, and it went like this. He explained that when the pastor turned to a scripture reference, if he said, hey, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, he said, okay, this is where you get out your Bible, and you turn to that passage, and you make sure that others notice that you're diligently following along. And then, as the pastor reads the scripture text, Jeremy would act like he was very interested, and he was, and but he was also sleepy. And so he said, I want to show people I'm thinking deeply. So he would reread the passage and he would underline it with his fingers so people would notice he was really into it. And then Jeremy said, then I would assume the position. And I thought, what is that? And Jeremy would place his head in his hand, touching the temple of his head. And he would look intently at the Bible. And then he would lean deeply into his hand and cover his eyes. So it looked kind of like he was reading his Bible, but he was covering his eyes so you couldn't tell if they were open or not. And with his eyes blocked out, out of sight, looking down into the Bible, this was the position that Jeremy had the ability to fall asleep in. He thought it worked. What he didn't know is that he snored. 
And there was a time or two while he was still asleep at the end of service, and we either stood up for that final song, and there he sat, or we got up and walked out, and there he sat, alone in the front rows. And he certainly had no idea that whenever he fell asleep with his hand on his forehead that he would exit the worship service afterwards with a big red mark across the front of his head. The truth is, is that sometimes the pastor's sermon is a little too long. Sometimes we pastors think the Holy Spirit wants us to go longer than the congregation does. Sometimes we do wander a little bit long in those sermons. One of America's most famous sermons, which is entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, probably took its original preacher, Jonathan Edwards, close to an hour to deliver. That was back in 1741. Today, most white Protestant pastors wouldn't dare keep people in the pews that long. In a report released in December of 2019, the Pew Research Center had analyzed over 50,000 sermons posted online by 6,431 churches that year to find out how long Christian clergy would preach. The average length of a sermon across the country was 37 minutes, but depending on your church denomination, that average could go up to an hour or down to just 15 minutes. So today, we're beginning a sermon series from Jesus' own sermon, often identified as the Sermon on the Mount, and this sermon I've always found to be very humbling. It's not least of which humbling for preachers, because it's the greatest sermon ever delivered. Who could argue that their sermons are better than Jesus' own sermon, right? And yet the sermon is very short. In the Gospel of Matthew, it spans just three chapters. It's 107 verses long. And if you want, you can read it out loud in about 15 minutes or less. I think I timed myself earlier this week reading out loud at about 12 minutes. In that short of a sermon, Jesus addresses turning the other cheek, forgiveness, prayer, fasting, the law, judgment, hell, adultery, divorce, hypocrisy, and happiness. Just a few of the areas he covers. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known portions of scripture. It's often quoted and unfortunately often applied to others instead of ourselves. It seems like we always point out when others are not obeying God's word as opposed to when we are not obeying God's word. If you spend any amount of serious time with the Sermon on the Mount and you try to apply it to your own life, it will cause a crisis in you. Jesus' words are quite blunt. The Sermon on the Mount gives us a window on how to know Jesus and how to know his mission. But this sermon also shows us that our world is the complete opposite of what God has envisioned for us. Today, we're going to read the very beginning of that sermon. It's often called the Beatitudes. And these are statements that are both comforting and, I think if we're honest, a little frustrating. I find myself reading these words most often to those who are grieving and struggling And often, I kind of feel like the Beatitudes are, really, it's for those who are down and out, but they're for everybody. But when I think about that, it makes me wonder, do I have to be down and out to be blessed? Here's my big idea for you today. The Beatitudes are Jesus' way of saying that the door to God's kingdom is open to all, to any who would receive. And that they also tell us that what we value is often very different from what God values. And they tell us of the deep satisfaction that God offers to each of us. And 
call us to a holy life. Can you hear those four things as we read the text today? That God's kingdom is open to all. That our values, yeah, they're often different from God's, and so we need to change our values to align with His. Can you hear that God offers deep satisfaction? Can you hear in the Beatitudes a call to a holy life? Let's read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed is the word that rings out over and over in this text. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And yet, I think we need to talk about that word for a little bit, because blessed is the best word to translate it, but we need to think about it a little bit. It's, I think sometimes blessed is a little too mellow to express what Jesus is describing, only because we've lost an idea of what blessed is. It's a good translation, blessed. But I think in our culture today, it lacks some emotional gusto. The electricity is taken out if we only read the word blessed. Because the word also means happy. And that is where we begin to see how upside down God's version for his kingdom is, or his vision for his kingdom is. Because it's one thing to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. But then if you read that word and say, well, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. I mean, come on, really? Happy are the meek. And when we read the word meek, we need to understand that it means that those who cannot stand up for themselves, not just humble, but it's those who cannot fight back when wrongs are done. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And again, that's a phrase describing people who hunger for righteousness. They haven't found it yet. Happy are the merciful. Mercy means giving up what you feel you deserve. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Peacemaking comes at great cost. Happy are those who are persecuted. Do you think persecution would make you happy? Those phrases all become very difficult when you insert the word happy. And yet, that word, blessed, has an electricity to it, an emotional bounce. Many other commentators suggest that when we read the Beatitudes, we should read lucky, as in, oh, you lucky person, lucky are the poor in spirit, lucky are those who mourn, and that's hard to read, isn't it? Lucky are those who are persecuted. Uh, I'm not sure anyone is considered lucky when they experience hardships. James Bryan Smith highlights another way this word, blessed, should be translated. 
in our culture today, blessed is very spiritual. It's, it's a little bit of a stiff word. Like people think of that as just, that's what devout people experience. They wouldn't be wrong. And happy is a word that is kind of subjective because sometimes your happiness is what you make of the situation. And luck just feels a lot like random chance. But the Greek word here that I've been talking about is makarios. And it's used to describe a person who is well-off, a person who has it just so good that they're to be envied by others. And man, is that hard to read in this text. Well-off are the poor in spirit. Envy those who mourn. Envy the person. Wait, what? What? Persecuted? How do we, why would we envy them? What's going on here? What is Jesus telling us? And that's where I want to come to the big idea, because we, we need that bigger understanding of blessed. And we start to get it, we start to see something happening here. Because the Beatitudes, with all these blesseds, all these envy these people, all this call to they are happy. The Beatitudes are telling us that everyone, every single person is invited to God's kingdom. It doesn't say everybody gets in, but everybody's invited. If they would just believe, if they would just receive Jesus. Jesus, by speaking the Beatitudes and starting his sermons, his sermon with these words is saying, everyone has an invitation to God's kingdom. If you thought you were down and out, if you thought you were excluded, if you thought you were not good enough, you have a place if you would just receive. Unfortunately, the Jewish faith of Jesus's day was very narrow in its understanding of who was welcome to the kingdom of heaven. The list that describe who was in and who was not welcome was very simple, and it eliminated a lot of people from having any hope of knowing God. In Jesus' day, there were these four ideas, four main requirements, if you were to be thought of as blessed enough to have the kingdom of God. And it started with this, you had to be Jewish. So if you weren't Jewish, you're not welcome. And then they believed you have to be male. I mean, there are even rabbis that would teach that women had a different sort of soul than men. The division was that big. You had to faithfully keep the law. So if you're unclean, the kingdom wasn't for you. And if you were a sinner, you had no hope of the kingdom. And fourthly, only the physically wealthy and healthy could enter the kingdom. The idea was the kingdom was a place where people were favored by God. And you were, knew you were favored by God when... You were wealthy when you weren't sick. So if you had a disease, if you're blind, if you're lame, if you're poor, there's no place for you. Jewish men prayed every day and still do pray. Thank you, Lord, for making me a Jew and not a Gentile, for making me a man and not a woman, for making me free instead of a slave. That's a system that's incredibly narrow. It excludes a lot of people. This system labels people as mistakes, unlovable, unworthy, and hopeless. And that system is not of God. Jesus' sermon, when you read those Beatitudes, it's like a bomb being lobbed out into the preconceived notions of his day. Can you hear the power in Jesus' words now? I mean, everybody in his day knew that Jewish holy men were well off and welcome to the kingdom. At least that's what everybody thought. But Jesus' list of who is blessed doesn't fit any of those four requirements. Because he says, well off are the poor in spirit. Well off are the mourners, the meek, those who are hungry but can't seem to find righteousness. 
those who are persecuted. In fact, perhaps the Beatitudes begin and end with the same blessing. That's the way God's way of trying to get our attention. Blessed are, whether it's poor in spirit or whether it's persecuted, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It starts and ends with the same blessing. It's available for anyone who would receive. Jesus is saying, you might think you know who's welcome before God. You might think you know who can be blessed by God. Or at least you might think you know who is not blessed. But the invitation, Jesus says, is for everyone. If you think you're too far outside of religion or too rotten or too sinful, that there's no place for you, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is inviting you to the kingdom. And when when you read the Gospels, crowds are just trying to get to Jesus like crazy. They're excited. They're digging holes through roofs. They're crowding into the house so that nobody can get in or out there. They're just, they're following him everywhere because they've always been taught that they're not welcome. And he says, oh, yes, you are. The Beatitudes tell us that everyone is invited to God's kingdom. Second thing about the Beatitudes is they remind us that what we value is often the opposite of what God values. We've heard Jesus' Beatitudes, but our culture might deliver them a little differently. Our culture says things more like, well off is the hard worker, the good student, and the disciplined athlete. Happy is the self-starter who's making their mark on the world. Happy are the strong, the effective, the powerful, and accomplished. Our society values strength and good looks and connections and the competitive instinct that can bring a person success. Very seldom do we say, lucky are the poor, the deprived, the meek, the stepped on, or happy are the mourners. Blessed is still the right way to read the Beatitudes. I think it's because happiness is subjective and luck is just random chance. I've mentioned that already. A blessing has an objective result. We need to see that. We need to understand that. It's not just a hope. It's not just a wish. A blessing is a promise from God. You're blessed when you're poor of spirit because you receive the kingdom of heaven. It's objective. There's something that's going to happen. There's a promise that we can look forward to. The Beatitudes flip our world upside down. They ask us to put our hope in better things than just momentary happiness or satisfaction. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, recounts a visit to a group of Wycliffe Bible translators. They lived at a retreat center in the Arizona desert. Mobile homes formed the compound, concrete building blocks, uh, concrete block buildings, and they had corrugated roof materials. They were preparing to go into the most remote corners of the world. They learned language, and they learned to translate the Bible for people who had no access to the Word of God. It's a very humble place. Next to the retreat center was a resort. It was a clinic. It it had Olympic swimming pools and exercise rooms and lush gardens and tremendous amenities. The resort was for people with eating disorders. It was for the rich and famous. They charged $500 a day. Both were doing needed work. One was focused on luxury and wealth, and the other becoming the least to serve the least. One was concerned about saving bodies. The other was concerned about saving souls. And Yancey's not disparaging eating disorders and the need to serve those who have them. It's important work. But he was contrasting the desire for luxury now versus the hope of heaven someday. 
James Bryan Smith writes this, when all is well in the kingdom of God and the kingdom, I'm sorry, let me reread this. When all is well in the kingdom of this world, we are tempted to think we have no need for the kingdom of God. So the Beatitudes ask us to measure by God's standards, not just by what seems good to us right here, right now. Third thing about the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes show us the depth of satisfaction that comes from God. The other day, it was the end of the evening and I had gone to bed and our dog, Sophie, climbed up (laughs) next to me asking to be petted. I know you may not like having your dog in bed. We love having our dog on the couch with us or in bed with us, at least to start the night. She's too big to stay the whole night in bed. And so Betsy and I, we spent a few minutes fussing over the dog and she just drank up the attention. She just loved it when we would pet her head and rub her ears and her fur was so soft. And after a few moments, I noticed the dog, she just sort of slipped into a dreamlike state. I mean, she was there, we were petting her and her eyes were open, but she kind of had just sort of faded away. She was so joyful. She was thoroughly enjoying that moment. She was satisfied. I think often we want satisfaction like that in the moment, but we don't find it. God, our creator, knows us best, and his desire is that we would be satisfied. And he knows that there's a close connection between happiness and holiness. Ask any Christian who has walked the road of faith for any length of time, especially the longer they've walked it, and they've allowed the Holy Spirit to work holiness in their life, ask them, and they'll tell you, Holiness leads to happiness. I think it's helpful to pile up the blessings and the Beatitudes. I think we get stuck on who gets blessed, the poor in spirit, the persecuted, and we forget what they're blessed with. So if you just take for a moment and look at one side of the Beatitudes, which says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and that they'll be comforted, and they'll inherit the earth, and they'll be filled, and they'll be shown mercy, and they will see God, and they will be called children of God, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I told you it starts and ends with the same blessing. I think that's a list that leads to satisfaction. Satisfaction despite hardship. God offers a depth of satisfaction that we can seldom comprehend. Fourth and final thing the Beatitudes talk about. The Beatitudes call the Christian to be holy. It's been said that the Beatitudes are a description of eight characteristics and eight blessings of the people of God. We just looked at the blessings, piled them up all by themselves, but it's also good to look at the characteristics. John Stott argues that the Beatitudes are much like the fruit of the Spirit. They're qualities of the life of a believer. So you could look at the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the Beatitudes describe, or they list, eight qualities of the disciple of Jesus. The Beatitudes describe a call to holiness. It's the poor in spirit. And yeah, we often read about the poor, and the least of these, and we need to serve and care for the poor. And yeah, I do believe this beatitude is talking about the poor. But Matthew, I mean, Luke has a list of beatitudes. He just says poor, but Matthew says poor in spirit. Poverty in itself is not a virtue. 
but not letting your spiritual state be controlled by your possessions, that's an important quality. The one who is poor in spirit realizes how much they need God. They realize how desperate our state is. And so they go, Lord, I'm poor in spirit. I can't make it to heaven on my own. I need the Lord. Blessed is the poor in spirit. There is a kingdom of heaven because they know how much they need God. Those who mourn. It's one thing to know who you are. It's, it's one thing to know that you are spiritually poor and in need of God. But the next step is to grieve and mourn your spiritual poverty. John Stott describes what he calls the Christian tear, weeping and remorse over the evil in our world, not simply that things are unjust or wrong by human standards, but that it's a great offense made against God. The meek. C.S. Lewis writes about this, and he says, well, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less than you do already. At least, we think of ourselves all the time. How can I get what I want? C.S. Lewis says, "Ah, think of yourself less and of others more. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Timothy Keller writes, if you seek righteousness first, you get happiness. If you seek happiness first, you get neither. It's a word of truth. The merciful. Our world needs mercy more than ever. So many are unwilling to show mercy and to forgive. And this feeds anger and hopelessness in our culture today. The Christian needs to lead with mercy. Then we have phrases like the pure in heart. That's holiness, isn't it? The peacemaker. The persecuted. All qualities of a believer. Do you bear them? It's a call to holiness. Where are you at in that part of the walk, that part of understanding the Beatitudes? Do you see the call to holiness? So what do we make of the Beatitudes? Well, they remind us that Jesus invites everyone to his kingdom if they would believe and receive and submit to him. And they show us that we, what we value is often the opposite of what God values. And the Beatitudes show us the depth of satisfaction that comes from God. All those blessings. He can really satisfy us if we let him. And they show us the calling on the believer to live a holy life. And they show us our deepest need for Jesus and his saving grace. Will you let yourself be called blessed today? Will you receive Jesus? He's the only way to receive the blessing of the Beatitudes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're the one who sends the invitations to the kingdom and not us. Because we'd leave people out. Help us to be faithful in sharing the gospel with every person and help us to measure the happiness and the blessing by your kingdom and not by how we feel today. Help us to take seriously your call to be a holy people. And Lord, help us to see all the more clearly the satisfaction that you have for each of us if we would just receive, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.